on this Friday, August 19th. A bit late today, but I gotta tell you, night shifts really do a number on you. I gotta tell you, for anyone out there who's done shift work that involves working overnight, sometimes you get back from your shift on a Friday morning, and it's the unofficial start to your weekend, or official start more so, and you absolutely just get hit with a ton of bricks, and you sleep all day, and then you find yourself like me, coming at you late with my show, but I am here nonetheless. And today, we are gonna go back to a pay-per-view I've never really talked about, which is odd because I've talked about this time period so much over the course of me being on this podcast for over three years now. And as I know, for all of you guys who have, you know, been fans of mine and fans of this podcast and taking the time to listen to me over the last uh, three, three and a half years since I joined Matt in May of 2019, I just want to say thank you. It truly, truly means a lot for me. Uh, to me, rather. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is the 100th episode of me doing Rivalries slash Retro. And, um, you know, they've kind of bled it together. Obviously, I rebranded the show, I want to say, six months ago now. And I hope you guys have enjoyed the retro, me opening up the uh, the, the topics a bit with it. But uh, all in all, to say just thank you for being with me through 100 episodes. Hopefully, I'm right on that. Uh, my math math has never been my strong suit. And thank you for supporting me and this podcast for the last number of years. But like I was saying before, I went on my sentimental rant. I We're going to go back today and talk about the Royal Rumble in 2004. And if you know me and you've listened to me for long enough, you know that I grew up in the Ruthless Aggression era primarily. And I've always talked about how WrestleMania 20 in 2004 was kind of like the height of ruthless aggression. But everything that we really came to know at WrestleMania uh, 20 and all the peaks of the 2004 year in WWE really got started at at the Royal Rumble pay-per-view. And, you know, the Royal Rumble, I would say over the last 10 years or so, has gone from the lowest of the lows to the highest of the highs. Like, I would say there was a stretch in there from 2014 right up until, I would say, 2016, like three in a row, where it was just brutal victories. And even 2013, although I don't think John Cena was as rejected in 2013 as Roman Reigns was in 2015, as Batista was in 2014, and as Triple H was in 2016, but you also have gotten these amazing highs, where I think one of the best rumbles in recent years was the Drew McIntyre 2020 victory, where WWE finally just pulled the trigger and had their finger on the pulse for something under the Vince McMahon regime, 
or in 2019, although it was predictable how Seth Rollins was the right guy to win that Royal Rumble, or 2018, Shinsuke Nakamura, which just feels like ages ago, based on him never really winning a world championship. And 2004 was a Royal Rumble where, I mean, they dropped Easter eggs as to who would win, but you never really expected it. And as the tagline of SummerSlam was two years ago, you didn't really, you never really saw it coming, at least for me. And obviously I was nine and a half years old at the time. Maybe if I was, you know, 20 or 28, like I am now, I would have been more, you know, I guess, um, uh, expecting it, uh, if, uh, for lack of better words, but how they built the entire summer, uh, Royal Rumble, I keep saying SummerSlam, the Royal Rumble card in 2000 and, and 2004 was one that really focused heavily on long-term booking. So you set the stage for the WWE landscape at the time, and obviously you had Evolution, who were the vocal points of Monday Night Raw. You had Randy Orton as the Intercontinental Champion. You had Batista and Ric Flair as the tag team champions and you had triple H as the world heavyweight champion and Randy Orton at this point was kind of entrenched with an on and off feud with Mick Foley. You had Batista and Ric Flair in a feud with the Dudley boys. And that is what would actually open up the match or the pay-per-view rather were the Dudley boys challenging evolution for their world tag team championships in a tornado tables match. And a match that went on for uh, that went on for just over five minutes, a five and a half minute match, and a fun match to start the uh, this to show. I always thought that opening in a tag team match, especially a gimmick paper uh, gimmick match, back in the day, was a good way to start the show. Uh, the coach gets involved and aids Batista and Ric Flair successfully win or retain their tag team championships after Batista put Devon Dudley through a table. Second match on the card, you have Rey Mysterio against Jamie Noble defending his cruiserweight championship, successfully so in just over three minutes. Kind of goes to show how the cruiserweight division was viewed at this time by one Vince McMahon. And I mean, you know, at this time, SmackDown was the more wrestling-heavy show. It had more of a wrestling feel. Paul Heyman, the head writer at the time, but on a pay-per-view, they don't get a lot of time. And it all, and it shows you where Rey Mysterio was at that point in his career. Had was far from the main eventer that he would eventually become in late 2005, early 2006. And then you get the first personal feud and the first serious match of the night. With Eddie Guerrero defeating Chavo Guerrero, accompanied by his dad and Eddie Guerrero's brother, Chavo Guerrero Sr., in just over eight minutes. And, you know, this was planting the seeds for where they were going over the next couple months because you had kind of seen the dissolution of the Guerreros, of Los Guerreros, over the preceding months into this match. You have Chavo Guerrero turning heel on Eddie Guerrero, blindsiding him and all that. And I remember thinking at the time, like, what they were kind of going with this or where they're going with this, because, you know, Eddie Guerrero, before, you know, teaming up with his nephew in late 2002, was kind of just like a lower mid-card guy, came in with the Radicals, had a Intercontinental Championship run, won the U.S. title in the early days of the brand split, but really had not done a whole lot to write home about since coming over to WWE. 
And he beats Chavo Guerrero in just over eight minutes. Handcuffs or he ties uh, Chavo Sr., I remember this, to the ring post with his tie. And just beats the hell out of Chavo Jr. And obviously, little did we know at this time that they were getting ready to put a rocket ship or a rocket pack to the back of Eddie Guerrero and push him absolutely to the moon. And a month later, you would have him defeat Brock Lesnar for the WWE Championship at No Way Out. And main event things, on the SmackDown side of things at least, at WrestleMania 20 in the match with Kurt Angle. And would go on to hold that title for just about four months until June of 2004. And it was just pretty cool that you would see it start in such a, you know, not insignificant match, but a match that you wouldn't really think much of. You thought it was just a personal feud. They had nothing else to do with Los Guerreros. The tag team was getting stale. But little did we know, we saw a legend in the making coming before our eyes. Then we get to the WWE Championship match of Brock Lesnar versus Hardcore Holly, a match that went 6 minutes and 22 seconds. And I, I gotta tell you, um, Hardcore Holly is a guy to me that I just never understood. And you hear a lot of stories on podcasts about how Hardcore Holly was backstage. And I ju- just heard a story about him. I believe it was on Jericho's podcast where he was interviewing Brian Gewertz, um, now a, a high-ranking official for The Rocks, a Seven Bucks production company, and the former head writer of Monday Night Raw, how um, he got very upset with Brian Gewertz because he thought that Edge and Christian were bribing him with uh, toys to uh, for television time. And you hear how Bob Hawley was kind of like a locker room, like policeman and even on screen a bit, like when Cody Rhodes came up and he was trying, he hated rookies. And I got to tell you guys, like, I don't know how many of you remember Bob Hawley or more specifically hardcore Hawley, but he bleeping sucked. <laughs> like, honestly, hardcore Hawley was just an absolute dull character that was supposed to be like this badass mid-card babyface who could like teach you a lesson. And I don't even remember him holding a singles championship aside from the hardcore title. And I just never got it with him. Like he had a good physique, obviously had a good look, was a stiff worker, but like there was just something about Bob Hawley that was just incredibly, incredibly boring and vanilla. And, like, him challenging Brock Lesnar for the WWE Championship match, like, could you get more of a predictable outcome than Brock Lesnar versus Hardcore Holly? It was, like, and look, I get it. The build-up to the match that, like, a year prior or something, Brock had botched a powerbomb and dropped Holly on his neck, and Bob Holly broke his neck, and he came back and won revenge and all this and the other stuff. But it's just, like, you know, we're supposed to believe that hardcore Holly, a career lower mid card, like a lower card guy, not even lower mid card, just like a low card guy who barely could get on velocity, which was at the time kind of like a main event to what's to SmackDown, kind of like what main event is to Raw now. And do you remember Superstars? I mean, Superstars was another kind of pre-show like that. But the hardcore Holly could barely make velocity and now I'm supposed to believe that he's going to be Brock Lesnar arguably the most dominant wrestler at the time it was just absolutely it was a waste of time that I'm just gonna say it we you know we all knew he wasn't gonna win Jack you know what 
Um, Bob Holly was always a waste of time. I never had time for Hardcore Holly, especially when you looked at the crop on SmackDown at that time with guys like Lesnar, guys like Guerrero, who was up and coming. You had Kurt Angle, you had the big show, an up and coming John Cena, The Undertaker, uh, Chris Benoit. These were all guys that I had so much more time for than Hardcore Holly, and uh, this was just an easy victory for um, Brock Lesnar to retain his championship and his last successful championship uh, successful championship defense. Then we get to arguably the best match of the night, which is saying something because the last match was the Royal Rumble, but we get Triple H defending the World Heavyweight Championship against Shawn Michaels in a last man standing match that went over 23 minutes. And if you look at all the other matches on the card, the four that preceded it all went no longer than eight minutes and two seconds. So collectively, the four matches before got the same amount of time, more or less, as the last man standing match. And that's pretty telling as to how important this last man standing match was. And to this day, I would make the case that this is the best last man standing match I've ever seen in my life. And it was something that, you know, I don't think we'll ever see again because this feud was just so damn personal that it, you just can't manufacture it. The chemistry between Shawn Michaels and Triple H is second to none with maybe the exception of The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin, but even The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin, while theirs was more of a main of mainstream feud and more of a, an, uh, an electric feud, I honestly don't think that anyone could match the intensity that this particular rivalry had with Triple H and Shawn Michaels. And these two beat the holy hell out of each other. There was blood everywhere, as Jim Ross would say, winning the Crimson Mask. And just when you thought Triple H had this match won in the bag, Shawn Michaels had other ideas. So Triple H seemingly is in the driving driver's seat. Shawn Michaels responds with a sweet chin music and you think he's going to answer the count of 10 and he just collapses in a pool of his own blood and it kind of just tells you what these two men went for and like to this day I maybe I'm wrong maybe there's a better last man staying match out there 
but I, to this day, have not seen a better one. One that had more close finishes, one that ended in a draw, which uh, resulted in Triple H retaining the World Heavyweight Championship. And look, I just, um, I think that this was a perfect way to end the card before getting to the actual Royal Rumble match. And what we saw of those two, arguably the most personal feud in the history of the company, arguably the best last man standing match in the history of the company for the World Heavyweight Championship at the time. And another thing is, is that the fact that they left this match open or this program open to continue on until WrestleMania, because as we know, these two would be involved in the main event of WrestleMania again and the the main event of Backlash, and they would have another match one-on-one inside Hell in a Cell at Bad Blood 2004. It was just perfect re- um, wrestling psychology between two in the be- of the best in the business at the time and this ending in a draw in a pool of their own respective blood was just a perfect way to tell this story then we get to the royal rumble match and there were so many storylines going into this match and it starts with chris benoit who enters number one after getting on the ba- uh, on the bad side of then gm paul Heyman, and intercontinental champion randy orton and What we saw was, you know, some good normal Royal Rumble stuff, but it was more when the personal storylines and the subplots are playing out that you really start to see the benefit of this Royal Rumble and just how brilliant this Royal Rumble was. And the first one was when Kane came to the ring. Now, just two, three months prior Kane had buried his brother, The Undertaker, at Survivor Series, helping Vince McMahon defeat the dead man, and we had not seen The Undertaker since. And when Kane came to the ring, he would be reminded that The Undertaker may not have been that dead after all. So, when you think it's The Undertaker coming out to seek revenge on Kane, his brother Kane, you see Spike Dudley come come out, and he never even made it to the ring. He would get choke slammed right on the steel uh, ramp, and that would be the end of Spike Dudley, but Kane would be eliminated after he was spooked by The Undertaker's gong, and you had Booker T hit him over the top rope from behind, and... You know, this was, again, probably the first step into building towards The Undertaker versus Kane 
at WrestleMania 20 in March of 2004. And again, this was another great way of great storytelling, long-term booking, and the first kind of hint that we were going back to the dead man character after seeing the the American Badass for three and a half years, or two and a half years, rather. Nope, nope, three and a half years. My bad, <laughs> it was three and a half years. And uh, like I said, guys, uh, math has never been my strong suit. So Kane gets eliminated, and just like that, we have kind of the first uh, hint that we are going to get a match at WrestleMania between Kane and The Undertaker. So we get to right around number 20 here, and Ray, uh, Randy Orton is still in the ring after coming in at number two. And like I mentioned earlier in the show is that Randy Orton was kind of engaged in an on and off feud with Mick Foley at the time. And when number 21 would come up, Randy Orton would get a surprise that not only he wasn't expecting, but nobody was expecting. So Mick Foley takes out Tess, steals his number and entry into the Royal Rumble, attacks Randy Orton, eliminates himself and Randy Orton in the process, and a brawl ensues, Orton gets a chair involved, and they brawl to the back, and again, long-term booking as what would we get at WrestleMania 20 
not even two months later, the Rock and Saw connection versus Orton, Batista, and Ric Flair of Evolution. So just another example of long-term storytelling and them planting Easter eggs as to what we would get in the coming months in major matches at major pay-per-views. And I just think that another good example of smart creative. And again, you have to realize people wanted to see Mick Foley at this time because he hadn't been an in-ring competitor on a full-time basis in over four years. His last match at this point, if I'm not mistaken, was the main event of WrestleMania 2000 in in the year 2000, evidently. WrestleMania 16 in the fatal four-way match with The Rock, Triple H, and the big show for the WWF Championship. So you get Mick Foley back in the mix. He gets some much-needed revenge that the fans were really clamoring for over Randy Orton. And just like that, you have yet another match on its way to a WrestleMania contest and a program that seemingly is headed for a big payoff on the grandest stage of them all. Before this match got underway, there was a segment between Brock Lesnar and Goldberg backstage. The second time they had run into one another, the previous time at Survivor Series 2003, when Goldberg was the World Heavyweight Champion. And, you know, Goldberg was on Raw, Brock was on SmackDown, and, you know, Goldberg was slated to come into this match number 30. And Brock had said to him backstage during an interview, he interrupts Goldberg's interview and says, who gives a damn about Bill Goldberg when the WWE champion was right here? So Goldberg vows to come in and raise hell, and he certainly came in and raised hell, but it quickly came to a halt when Brock would interject himself. Yeah! Kurt Angle has a little 
So after Goldberg comes in, absolutely raising hell, destroying everyone in his path, almost breaking Nunzio in half, he gets F5'd by Brock, who interjects himself in the match. And then as he's staring down Brock, calling him a son of a you-know-what, Kurt Angle eliminates him from behind. And just like that, you have a setup to a match for a big-time clash at WrestleMania, which would ultimately become one of the more underwhelming contests in the history of the company. That's for damn sure. But on a side note, it would be, if or on a positive note rather, it would also set up um, rivalry that would have more of a positive payoff, what, 15 years later? Or more so than that. Or no, it was about 12 years later when Goldberg would return in 2016 and they would finally have... The series of matches that everyone thought they would at Survivor Series 2016 and ultimately WrestleMania uh, 33 in 2017, where Brock would get his revenge and finally get the one up on Goldberg and win the Universal Championship. But then just all this to say is that another match that they would set up at the Royal Rumble and just a lot of long-term storytelling. And this one goes all the way back to Survivor Series. That So they knew that they wanted to do Brock and Goldberg for quite some time. And you really got to put into the fast lane at the Royal Rumble. And as we know, the next pay-per-view, the SmackDown pay-per-view, Stone Cold gives the ticket to Goldberg to sit front row. He interferes in the match, helps Eddie Guerrero out, and Guerrero would win the WWE Championship capitalizing off of the interference of Goldberg against Brock Lesnar. So we get down to the final three, which is Chris Benoit, The Big Show, and Kurt Angle. And Benoit is still in it through all of this, over an hour at this point. Kurt Angle gets eliminated, and it comes down to The Big Show and Chris Benoit. In truly what was a massive mismatch, in terms of size, but one that would really tell a heroic feat for one Chris Benoit. Amazing ending here of this battle, this Royal Rumble Benoit hanging 
And there you had it, Chris Benoit would win the Royal Rumble, one of the more shocking Royal Rumble victories and one of the more exciting Royal Rumble victories that I've ever seen, even to this day. And look, obviously we can't talk about it for obvious reasons, based on everything that happened to Chris Benoit and what he did in real life, but this entire run to WrestleMania 20 that was really kind of... I centered around Chris Benoit in a lot of ways and his rise to the main event was a historic one and a really great time in wrestling and as I've said before the peak of the ruthless aggression era in early 2004 and like I said WrestleMania 20 ranks as my second favorite WrestleMania of all time uh, arguably the best main event of all time with Benoit, Triple H and Shawn Michaels and just an absolute brilliant time. Uh, that really started with the Royal Rumble in 2004, one of the best Royal Rumble cards that uh, I've ever watched and I've ever experienced to date. And that's saying something because there have been a lot of great Royal Rumble events since this happened uh, almost 19 years ago, which is absolutely insane to think about. I remember watching this live. And it makes me feel really old. But with that, we'll end it there. I hope you enjoyed the Royal Rumble 2004. As always, you can get me on Twitter at Adamarco25. You can get Matt on Twitter at Wrestling underscore audio. Or you can email him each and every week for the WWE mailbag. Anyway, guys, thanks for being around for 100 or so odd episodes. And I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the WWE Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a show. Or head to WWEPodcast.com. And for all of these shows ad-free, head over to Patreon.com slash WWE Podcast. Until then, we'll see you next time.